Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Let me ask you a question. When you think of a fool... Who comes to mind? When I think of a fool, certain people immediately come to mind. But we're going to stick with movie characters today. I think of Laurel and Hardy. I think of Maxwell Smart. I think of Inspector Clouseau or certain movie characters played by Steve Martin or Jim Carrey or Steve Carroll, right? But those characters, if you really think about it, they're they're mostly harmless, well-intentioned, naive lacking in social and intellectual intelligence. In fact, they tend to evoke kind of a, a certain sense of pity mixed with amusement. That's the reason their shows are so popular, right? But many of those people don't really fully embody how the Bible describes and defines a fool. Today we're going to talk about how David almost lost his future because of a fool. David's story that we're going to look at today is really kind of a tipping point story. It's a, it's a moment in life, much like all of us have faced, and I'm certain that most of us will face them again probably multiple times in our lives, that these tipping point moments that they can determine whether we end up facing a disappointing setback or even walk into irreparable loss for our future or whether we move into the dream God has for us in life. The story we're going to talk about is found in 1 Samuel 25, and I'm going to spend some some time summarizing things and reading portions of the text and try to get us caught up to what's happened in David's life to this point. Last week, we left the story off with uh, David and Jonathan reaffirming their friendship and their covenant, and Jonathan, Saul's son, helping David escape Saul's plot to kill him. By the time we get to where we are today, a lot has gone on. Saul's pursuit of David has gotten to the point where it's been vile enough where he ended up murdering a bunch of priests who innocently helped David as he was fleeing. David continued to flee, and he fled desperately to sanctuary with a guy named King Achish. Now, you need to understand, Achish is a Philistine king, so he's the enemy king. And he sought sanctuary with him, and initially the king gave it to him. But then his nobles started to talk to him and and, and convince him that David, this great general from Israel, was a threat to them and that he should kill them. So David managed to feign being insane so that they would think he was harmless, and he escaped, and they let him go. So David then flees to the wilderness, and, and, and it says in the text that those in distress or in debt or discontented gathered to him about 400 men. That sounds like a great group of people to lead, right? I mean, every single one of them in trouble with the law or trouble with somebody not managing their finances. They're critical. They're sought after as traitors or seeking to betray their government. Just a great group of people to try to lead, right? Even while in the wilderness, David is called upon with these 400 men to save an Israelite town. So interestingly enough, he is still, even while being hunted, fighting for Israel and helping Saul and Israel out. In response to Saul's repeated pursuit of him, David continues to move further and further south in Israel and eventually to the rugged En Gedi Desert, which here's a picture that kind of shows you why that would probably be a great place to hide and, uh, and escape, right? 
Uh, it's here in this place where the story Jeremy talked about a couple weeks ago takes place, where Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself, but it happens to be the cave that David and his men are hiding him in. So uh, his men try to encourage Saul or David to kill Saul because they say, he's, he's given into your hand. Kill him, the guy who's trying to kill you, right? So David sneaks up. He, he cuts off a piece of his robe, but then God convicts him and he's conscience stricken of what's right, best, and good and he refuses to kill Saul. But what, what Jeremy didn't get to in that story is Saul leaves the cave and gets, you know, 50 yards away, whatever it was, and, and, and then David walks out of the cave and holds up a piece of his robe and says, see, you were in my hand, but I will not touch you because I honor you. And Saul was so taken with remorse by David's integrity and his honor that he repents of his evil intent to kill David and leaves him there safe. But that only lasts a short time because Saul's insecurity kicks up again and he, he returns to hunting David, trying to kill him. Now just for a second here, think of the emotions. Think of the intense level of stress David is experiencing in this time. This great general. He's been facing over the last months or years that I've just summarized where he's been driven into hiding. He's not sure of who he can trust. He's pursued by a vastly outnumbered army to him, so much bigger than his. Uh, and it's an army that he's still faithfully serving even while they're pursuing him. There's a lot going on in David's life, but there's a lot more about to happen. As we begin in 1 Samuel 25, it begins by saying Samuel himself, this great prophet who anointed both Saul and David as king, dies. Now, now think about it. Isn't it interesting? Saul is pursuing David to kill him. Saul executes priests who innocently give David support, not knowing Saul has even judged him or pursuing him yet. He executes them because of giving help innocently. And yet... With Samuel, Saul does nothing to pursue him. Saul will not touch the prophet who is the voice of God to both of them. So can you imagine David's thoughts when Samuel dies? Samuel, the only person David knows who is for sure safe, who could stand up to Saul, and he's the only person who has even a remote chance of mediating peace between Saul and David, and he's now dead. Can you imagine the grief and the sense of aloneness that David must be feeling? So let's personalize this just a little bit. Do you remember the day that one of your most admired leaders or role models in life died? Maybe that person was a person like Mother Teresa or a great political leader or a celebrity or maybe it was a great teacher in your life, a great mentor, or maybe it was a parent or a grandparent. How did you feel that day and for the days following that? Now, add to that the sense of loneliness that David's feeling, the questions of how long will I be in the wilderness? What, what now will happen that my own, after my only ally, great enough to potentially bring a peaceful resolution to this, is dead? Can you feel the, the desperate level of aloneness and maybe even the hopelessness that David's facing in that moment? So we see David, he moves for, much further south continuing to try to get further away to safety. He moves into a place called the Desert of Paran, which is a picture of that. And it's, it's a place I wouldn't want to live. It's much, much more inhospitable as a place to live. 
And the story picks up there in verse 2, and it says, A certain man in, in Maon, which is in the desert of Paran, who had property there at Carmel, was, a very, was very wealthy. He had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. So let's understand this. He was a Calebite. means he was the family of one of Israel's greatest heroes, Caleb, right? And if you understand, you remember, Caleb is actually part of David's tribe. So David and Nabal are distant relatives, right? So David, staying there whose men had served as extra protection for Nabal's shepherds and sheep, asks his men to go to Nabal to ask Nabal to give he and his men some food and supplies. Now, at first, I realized you could look at that and say, well, this is just gang protection money, right? But that's not all what's going on. As you read the story through and as you understand the context, David had done a great service to Nabal that greatly benefited him. Most historians would look at that time period in that part of the country and say that Nabal, during that time period, would have normally lost many sheep and likely some of his servants to wild animals, to bandits, or that was an area that regularly had armies moving in and out of it and through it and traders moving in and out of it, armed traders moving in and out of it who would steal herds and possessions on a regular basis. David and his men have protected Nabal from all of that kind of loss that he would have normally experienced without them. So Nabal has experienced great financial gain as a result of David and his men being there. So David coaches his men how to ask in a polite and respectful way, which they do. And Nabal responds with this in verse 10. He says, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? And he had motorcycles driving by right then too. So that's a great sound effect. I mean, think about this. Nabal knows who David is. He's a distant relative. And he's also a great general who's won great battles for Israel. This is the preamble to a really big insult in the making. Nabal goes on and says, Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? Right? Wow. It's one thing to say, no, I don't want to do this, right? But Nabal demeans David's name and then accuses him of treachery. This is the same David who a few weeks, maybe a month earlier, fought and saved a Jewish town from slaughter by the Philistines. This is the same David that he's accusing of treachery who had Saul in that cave, yet in the midst of that, David is gracious and honorable towards Saul, even as Saul is trying to kill him. So David's men go back and tell him of Nabal's response. So let's, let's get a little further into David's mindset for a frame of mind here. So David is grieving the loss of Samuel. One thing I didn't mention, he's also grieving the loss of his wife, Saul's daughter, who Saul took away from him and forced her to marry somebody else in order to spite David. Because of Saul's pursuit, David is driven deeper and deeper into the hardest places to live on the face of the planet, in spite of multiple promises by Saul to relent and not seek to kill him. 
He and his men are living on meager rations, inconsistent rations, and yet they still honorably enhance Nabal's wealth by protecting his flock and his shepherds. And then in the midst of all that grief and hunger and stress, he is outlandishly insulted, disowned as a relative, and labeled a scoundrel and a traitor by Nabal. What would you do if you were David in that moment? Well, you might do something like David did. David told all his men, strap on your swords, and he took 400 of the now 600 fighting men who had joined him, and they head off in a rage with an oath to kill Nabal and every fighting-aged male in his household. The word Nabal, his name, actually means fool or foolish. Whether it's given to him by his mom as a cruel joke, can you imagine a mom naming a kid that? Or whether, it is, uh, uh, or whether his real name was something that sounded something like Nabal and because of his character being a fool, the nickname seemed to fit and so everybody started calling him Nabal that. Nabal is a foolish man. So let's just spend just a moment here and look at how the Bible defines a fool because it has nothing to do with position. It has nothing to do with intelligence or talent. Nabal was a successful businessman. I know plenty of business leaders and political, political and community leaders who are better educated than most, some with PhDs from the best of the best universities with lots of talent and recognition as, success, as being successful, and yet they are foolish. And I know plenty of people who are not leaders of their organizations, who have average intelligence, average talent, average incomes, who are quite wise. See, we see many of the lessons on what makes a person foolish in Proverbs illustrated in Nabal. He's arrogant, right? Overestimating his knowledge and his abilities. He is a scoffer. He's one who is overly critical and needs to put others down in order to bolster how he feels about himself. And he does that to David. I mean, if he wanted to say no, he could have just said no, right? But Nabal needed to insult David. He's a bad listener. He doesn't accept correction and instruction from others. We're going to see that as part of the story in just a moment, demonstrating his inability to learn critical relational and character lessons from experience. So he just beats his head against the wall doing the same stupid stuff over and over again. And he's driven by anger, which finds its root in jealousy and pettiness and a lack of trust. And he finds pleasure. Maybe this is even more important as a fool. He finds pleasure in being mean and evil. And he's self-centered finding no need at all to reverence and obey God above all else. Nabal is a fool, just as his name indicates. And if we're honest, isn't it so easy to be provoked by a fool or someone's foolish actions? David is so provoked by the wrong indignity, the false accusations, the desperation of the circumstances that he sets off in this, to, to go on this murderous killing spree. See, God's plan for David was for him to be the next king, for him to be an author of Scripture, for him to impact generations to come. And he almost threw it away with one bad emotional provocation from a fool in a foolish moment. Honestly, if I think about this story very long, there's a certain element of it that terrifies me because I can see how any one of us, me included, could be caught in being provoked and throw it all away so easily. 
That fear, hopefully for most of us, drives us to prayer and asking for wisdom and hungering for God to be more and more real to us and hungering for God to become more and more the true leader of our life every day. But the clear warning of this passage is very simple and clear. It's don't sacrifice your future for a fool or a foolish acting person. I don't know what kind of person you have like that in your life. Maybe it's a colleague. Maybe it's a boss or a family member or a neighbor. We all need to be careful not to do something in a moment of frustration and provocation that forfeits our future. Now, I understand you, you're not in a desert. You're not living in a desert. You don't have 600 men following you, armed men following you. You're not hungry. You're not considering retaliating like David by killing a bunch of people over an insult, Right? Yet we all face moments like this in our life. Faced with the perfect storm of circumstances that provoke us to respond that can affect our future negatively. I remember one time in my life when I didn't handle well a situation like this. It was about 13 years ago and it was a simple thing like basketball. In a perfect storm of work intensity and life stress and tiredness and then allowing myself to be talked into making the foolish decision to co-coach a team alongside a person who was regularly foolish but one of the best skills, technically talented people I've ever worked with. I worked with him and I, I, there was this moment that it all came together and I lost it for about five humiliating yelling seconds when the gym was completely silent during a game. I still to this day have this visceral anger and utter humiliating embarrassment feeling come over me when I think or talk about that moment. But you see, my blow up in that moment did nothing to improve that relationship or the circumstance. In fact, it provided fuel for that foolish coach to consider to power, continue to power up, to continue to try to imitate and embarrass me or whoever he felt like stood in his way of doing things the way he wanted them. And it made him even worse in the way he treated the kids. See, when we allow ourselves to be provoked by a fool, We violate Proverbs 26.4, which says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. See, my anger in that moment and the focus of my anger caused me to act just like what I was wanting to correct and change in the other person. Have you ever done that with a family member or a colleague in a heated moment? So for all of us, we face those moments, and for many of those moments, we face them well, and we move on in a positive manner. But I'm also fairly certain every one of us have had a few moments where we have poorly responded in a situation like that. Our anger, our impulse, our desperation, our pain got the best of us, and we acted without fully thinking it through. And in that one moment, we damage relationships. And for some of us, those impulsive moments have done irreparable harm to our future. In a moment, you made a decision that broke your family apart. In a moment, you lost it and and you'd greatly set back the timing of God's intended promotion for your career because you damaged a relationship with your boss or with a client. You did something that greatly damaged a relationship with your friend or your children or your parent and you, you may have even lost that relationship entirely and you're struggling with that now. I mean... Let's be honest, I've heard lawyers and judges and law enforcement officers say this regularly. They say our courts and our prisons are full of good people who in a moment 
got caught in a negative spiral of decisions and actions and were provoked and it changed their future. I don't do a lot of counseling. I don't do any counseling anymore to speak of, but, but I used to do a fair amount. And I can't tell you how many times I sat across the, ta- the, the couch from a, a really good person and, it was, and they'd say to me, it was just once. I don't know what came over me, but... And then they go on to relate their story. A year after we moved to, uh, to Ohio, I called a pastor friend of mine in, in another part of the country because I'd heard that he had uh, fallen to one of these moments in his life uh, that damaged his future. And he said to me on the phone, he said, Ross, it was just a moment when I was tired. I was feeling really down about the life and about family and ministry and some of the conflict going on in life. And he says, I don't know what came over me. I just... I just bought the woman a drink and one thing led to another and I ended up in her hotel room for the night and now my marriage is over, my ministry is over, and my kids, I don't even know if they want to talk to me anymore. See, one of the big problems with those kinds of moments in our life is not only do they affect our relationships and sometimes our relationships don't recover well from those, but we too often let those moments define us. And we as a person, you as a person, don't ever fully return to God's forgiveness and love and who you really are in Christ, which has been the case with this friend that I talked to on the phone. This guy in many ways has disconnected now from his faith and pursued a life that is contrary to many of his lifelong held beliefs because that negative moment defined him and his identity. And he lets it continue to be the identity for him. See, you let a fool or simply a foolish action of another or a perfect storm of circumstances get a foothold and provoke you to react and it damages you and your relationships and oftentimes your future. See, David had faced this kind of temptation before, the moment in the cave with Saul weeks or months earlier when Saul unknowingly came in the cave. But David was able to step back from the brink of disaster in that moment and he passed that test. But here once again in our story today, David is being tested. And so far in the story, David is failing miserably. He's choosing murder over God's ways. And not only is David choosing to sin, he's involving hundreds of people with him in that sin, which is just, we've got to get this. Our sin is never just an individual thing. Our sin always involves and affects and damages others, no matter what we've done. See, we're all like David. And this passage is a helpful warning for us. But it's also full of wisdom in how we get through these tests how that, that come out of nowhere in life oftentimes and just hijack a moment of our life rather than getting sunk by them. There's wisdom that this text has for us. You see, the only thing bef- between David and a very different bad future where we would not read about him probably at all in the Bible is the wisdom of a woman named Abigail in this moment. Let's read further in verse 14. It says, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at us. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us at all the whole time. We were out in the fields near them. Nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. 
And Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, about 60 pounds of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisin, and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go ahead and I will follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine. And there were David and his men descending in all their anger and venting toward her. And she met them. So Abigail and her servants ride right into the middle of the fray of David and his comrades, anger and venting and demonstrating for us something that needs to be present for us to face these situations well. And it means we have to be brave and we have to be bold. And we're going to learn some lessons from two people in this passage who are brave and bold that are valuable lessons for us to get through this. First one is Abigail's bravery and boldness. Looks like taking the initiative to discreetly clean up another person's mess. Now, honestly, it's so easy for us to say in life, I'm not my brother's keeper, right? But Abigail knows that she must be Nabal's keeper. Granted, the situations you face don't generally involve, you know, hordes of armed men killing people, right? But if you live or work with someone who is foolish too often, like Abigail, you will find yourself in situations where you have to work around that person, even behind their back, to do cleanup work and prevent defense, if you will. As frustrating as that is, you know it's the right to do when the reward for you in that situation is less people hurt and particularly less innocent people being spared from hurt. See, now let's remember, lest we skew this story out of proportion. Nabal is foolish, demeaning, difficult to work with. He doesn't listen. Does that sound like any of your bosses or parents or siblings or spouse or neighbors that you know? But he's also quite competent in many ways because he is a very successful as a businessman. See, the story is careful to point that out. Does that also sound like some of the difficult people in your life that you work with? Now, common healthy wisdom tells us we should always be direct in our communication. Even the servants in this passage kind of indicate that they've tried to be direct either in this time or in the past, and, uh, but it didn't work. And Abigail knows Nabal is, the text t- describes her saying, he is worthless and mean just acknowledging it. He's, foolishness is going to hurt many innocent people. He will only, and, and, and she knows that if he tries to go to him, he will only respond negatively. So she bravely bypasses Nabal, going behind his back, takes things in her own hands. And notice how she models for us gracious, direct communication right before our eyes. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. So she wisely shows honor and respect, showing us how we should start out any kind of confrontation that we do, showing honor and respect. It's a healthy way to start. Verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. So she speaks plainly and honestly, doesn't she? She fully acknowledges David's right to be offended in this moment. And she fully acknowledges Nabal's offense. She doesn't excuse, she doesn't belittle the foolishness one iota. She just states it plainly. 
Then she goes on and says, As for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God gives, uh, God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed, that's interesting, in the middle of the process, has kept you from bloodshed, from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies all be, and all who are intent on harming you, my Lord, be like Nabal. So Abigail calls out not only Nabal's sin, but she's actually calling out in a rather inviting way, an interesting way, the intent of David to sin and making that really clear in this moment. But she doesn't leave it that. She doesn't leave it at just acknowledgement of the situation and the blunt confrontation of both Nabal's sin and David's intent to sin. She goes further in the text and essentially says, David, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Don't blow your reputation and your future on a fool. And then she goes on and says in verse 29, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life. So again, she identifies with them. She says, yes, David, I know the threat and the injustice being done to you of Saul pursuing you right now. I get that. I know that. But, but then she goes on basically saying, but remember, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Now, that sling reference is powerful, and we're going to come back to that in a moment, but, but let's see what she's saying right here. Abigail reminds David what? That vengeance is something we leave to God. See, we easily forget who God is, that God says, vengeance is mine, not yours. And then when we take things into our own hands, we take them out of God's hands. And that can only lead to falling short at best and destruction at worst. See, it, it takes us being brave and bold in faith. And that's what it means to trust God. Brave and bold faith means we trust God. Abigail, in an honoring way, confronts David by reminding him of who God is and what God has called him to be and reminding him that it is more important to fulfill that call with integrity than deal with your feelings by taking them out on another in a moment, no matter how unjust it's been. See, how easy it is for us to get set off when somebody treats us with that kind of demeaning injustice and we want to take and justify ourselves and we want to then mete out justice by our actions. But it's God who brings vengeance, not us. It's his place to do that. And God brings vengeance in an unusually swift way in the story. Abigail goes home after successfully interceding with David and he doesn't immediately tell Nabal that night that he was a jerk and he, she doesn't say to him, doesn't belittle him or anything like that. She waits till the morning when he's no longer drunk. I'm sure he probably had a big headache. But then simply tells Nabal very clearly and simply, simply about the doom that he had brought and how she had averted it. And the text goes on to say that Nabal was so stressed and overcome by that, he appears to have what doctors think was a massive stroke and he's paralyzed and he dies 10 days later. Now, God's not always going to remove the fools from your life in such a manner, okay? But it is a clear message to us that God will indeed be wise in showing both mercy and justice, but justice is still a part of the equation and God sometimes does that quickly. Let's look at the brave and bold lesson that we learned from David. But in order to do that, we have to look further at Abigail because she's even wiser still. See, with the sling reference, what's she doing there? See, Abigail is leading with that sling reference, David's thoughts back to Goliath. 
tactfully reminding him, you are facing a Goliath right now. But the Goliath isn't Nabal. The Goliath isn't your difficult living conditions. The Goliath is not Saul who's pursuing you to kill you. Your Goliath isn't outside of you, David. Your Goliath is inside of you. See, these moments we face are not about the other person. They're not about the unjust, unfair circumstances that are provoking us and resolving those. They are first and foremost about you or me, whoever is being provoked. God is intentionally investing in that moment and growing your character. See, this is a time when you need to stop navel-gazing and start doing a little navel-gazing. Okay. Bad joke. Sorry. This is a time when you stop looking at the foolish person and you start looking at yourself. See, in a broken and sinful world, we are always going to face navels and navel moments where we get fed up with the foolishness and the injustice of the world. But what's going on in us? What are we doing in that moment? It has nothing to do with the circumstances and everything to do with what God is doing in you and who God is to you in that moment. See, if David had gone through with killing everyone and meeting out justice, likely God would have removed his spirit from him and chosen someone else to be king, just like he did for Saul after Saul repeatedly disobeyed God. And David could have lost it all because of how he responded to a fool in a foolish moment. Yet what we see throughout all of this time, from the cave experience with Saul to this and other experiences, that God is graciously intentionally growing David. He's growing his character so that David will have the ability to be the kind of good king that God wants him to be and that David himself wants to be. The only way to develop character, that character, is for God to train David, to train you by seeing how David will respond when tempted to abuse power. See, God will use moments like that in your life and in my life, to develop your character. Because character is like muscles. You use, you use it with resistance, like muscles. Otherwise, character shrivels. Like muscles, you don't magically wake up one day and, and are able to bench press 300 pounds of character. It takes training and resistance and regular Usage, character needs to be developed. Faithfulness needs to be developed. Patience needs to be trained, and they're trained through resistance. Healthy, patient, self-controlled, gracious, loving communication is something we practice. It is trained by usage in difficult conversations where there is resistance and we face resistance. And that character growth is the real issue in those moments. And that can only happen by you looking inward and taking responsibility for what is going on inside of you so that what comes out of you in those moments when you're tempted to be provoked is instead godly and good and righteous. See, because of recognizing and knowing God's intentional love, David is more able to look at himself, teaching us that you need to develop the bravery to be bold and face yourself before God and others. 
Think about the moment that we're in here. There's just a second more. David has whipped 400 men into a bloodthirsty frenzy. And remember, these guys are the rabble of Israel, so it probably wasn't very hard for him to whip them up. And they're still probably in a frenzy. But David is faced, when faced with Abigail, in spite of all that whipped-up energy around him that is continuing to propel him down the path he's on, David instead listens and he says this in verse 32. Praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. See, the most important thing you can cultivate in your life, the most important thing you can cultivate as as parents and model for your children, the most important thing you can cultivate in your life as bosses in order to create a healthy work environment where things get done and they get done well and people get along and it's a great work environment to work in is for you to be brave and bold in looking at yourself, taking responsibility, personal responsibility for your heart and actions, even when you are justifiably provoked by foolish actions or foolish people around you, to take a look at yourself and to repent, to apologize, to extend God's wisdom and grace in this situation. And that starts by seeing God's love and intention toward you in that moment. Because then you start to see these navels in your lives differently. You see them as God giving you an opportunity to grow. See, it takes far more bravery and boldness to see the evil of our own heart and to deal with it honestly than it does to see the evil of another person. Allow God to develop you, in you, the bravery to boldly face yourself before God and with others, to be honest with others. See, David, in all of the difficulty he faced, was not alone in any of these moments, including this one. God was giving him a trial of grace. He was with him every step. He was the one who provided Abigail for him in this moment to be gracious to him, to help keep him from sin. And he'll provide the same for you in each of your situations. See, David, like each of us, was a man who needed to be rescued from sin. It wasn't so much he needed to be rescued from Nabal or his circumstances. He needed to be rescued from himself. Today, some of you may need to be bold like Abigail. Come on, worship team. You you may need to take a respectful, bold initiative in confronting a situation or cleaning up a situation that you haven't wanted to take responsibility for. Others of you may need to stop focusing on the enables in your life and instead ask yourself the questions, how do I need to see God loving me and investing in my future right now in this moment that I'm facing, as difficult as it is? How is God inviting me to grow in my integrity and my grace and my wisdom in this moment? And allow those questions to flip your heart from that negative place that we get caught in when we're provoked to this curiously grateful place of wondering how God is going to bless you in this moment. See, I find it so easy in my own heart to go to the negative rather than see God's good plan for me in facing these navel moments in my life. Let God come to you 
to free you of that stirred up negativity that's going on and to grow you in this moment if you are facing a Nabal moment right now. Would you join me in prayer? Would you stand? Lord, we worship you and we thank you that you are a God who is always with us. And Lord, sometimes you bring us intentionally into these difficult moments to grow us and test us like you brought David into this, but sometimes they just happen because it's life around us and it's not you doing it, but neither, any way, either way it is, Lord, you are there with us. And you want us to, to grow. You want us to grow in grace and grow in peace, even in those difficult, provoking moments so that we can respond with wisdom. Lord, some of us here, uh, uh, right now, I I feel like we're getting caught in some of the guilt of this because some of us are recognizing that, that I really blew it. I got provoked. And I made it all about the other person, and I have done irreparable damage to some situations. It seems like irreparable at least. And Lord, would you come to us in that moment and would you just assure us you still have a good hope and a good future for us. That nothing is irreparable in your eyes. That even if those relationships never return, that you still have blessing you want us to walk in. I pray that you'd bring a freedom from that lingering guilt, that lingering embarrassment that lingering frustration and hopelessness that has come to some of us because of those instances in our life. May you help us move forward in your hope. Would you just continue to worship now? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.